0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org.
1: We are today continuing our little mini-series through our mega-series through Matthew. Uh, We are 80-some weeks into a series of the Gospel of Matthew, and and we've been taking a few years. We will finish this series uh, a few weeks after Easter this year, but we are right now in the middle of this section, Matthew 23, 24, and 25, that brings us face-to-face with some of the most difficult sayings of Jesus in the Bible— some of the most uncomfortable topics, but also some topics that are full of misunderstanding. They're kind of in a genre of literature that's a little bit unfamiliar to most of us, a little bit difficult to get our minds around. But not only is it difficult to get our minds around, because of some of the discomfort of facing things about about judgment or the end of the world, you're like, yikes. If you're new, again, welcome to Park Church. Glad you're here today, too. Um, that's what we're talking about today. As you think about getting our mind around it, it's also really challenging for us to not to not just understand it, but to Let the realities of Christ and his kingdom, what he's promised, make its way into our heart and the way we live. Make its way into our heart and the way we live. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time working through the rest of Matthew chapter 24, picking up where we left off last week, and then go into the beginning of Matthew 25. We'll spend more time in Matthew 25 next week and the week after that. Uh, And so that's kind of where we're at. I want to encourage you, again, to kind of mentally engage. We are wading in some, like, deep waters in terms of understanding, but also some really deep waters in terms of heart level work I think God wants to do. And so we're going to pray that God would help us awaken our minds and our hearts to what Jesus has to say for us. I think it's really profound. And I also think that there's something that God's doing even in our own church family. As we've been praying and processing and begging God to move in our hearts and among our community, we see God doing a new thing. God's doing stuff to stir us up towards repentance, confession, hope, joy, transformation, healing, passion for him, passion for his kingdom. We see him doing something. And I think what Jesus talks about here is supposed to help us live with more clarity to engage in the world in the way he's called us to. And so I want to pray that his spirit would be poured out on us in a really fresh way today as we look at these things, that it wouldn't just be wrestling with kind of interesting topics or kind of working through uncomfortable topics, but that Jesus would bring transformation into our community and renewal. And so let's pray that he would do that. Um, Jesus, we come right now and confess that we need you. Uh, We don't just want to gather kind of as as a mere ritual. Uh, We want to gather as people that want to walk in your presence, that want to commune with you, that want to hear from you, that need you to bring forgiveness, to bring cleansing, to bring healing, to bring transformation into our lives. So as we consider things that you have said throughout history, things that Matthew recorded and passed on for subsequent generations of Christians, would this not just be kind of an interesting time looking at old things, but would your word be active today? Would your power be at work today? Jesus, your name is power, breath. It's living water. And I pray your name, your authority, your word would work in power today. So we pray for renewal through the Holy Spirit, for awakening, that you'd revitalize our hearts and give us passion. For you, that you'd give us repentance. You'd give us hope and joy and love that you'd unleash us on this world as people who walk with resilient faith and steadfast faithfulness in all the ways you've called us to live. We need you, King Jesus. We need your grace and your mercy today. So we pray you'd pour it out on us through the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, We get to talk about some things today, again, that are are a little bit unfamiliar and maybe a little bit uncomfortable. So I want to start with this word right here, this word eschatology, and just... I want you to like, think about what does that word make you feel? How many of you like see that word and you're like, yes, eschatology. I'm so pumped about this Sunday. All right, not many. Great. How many of you are like, pass. I don't really like talking about this stuff. It's kind of weird. You don't even have to raise your hand, but just feel it in your heart. Feel the discomfort creeping in. Feel it growing. Feel your seat getting a little itchy. You want to take a water break, you know, take a call outside, whatever you need to do. You're feeling uncomfortable. For some of you, that word is like totally foreign. It's just a, a weird word, eschatology. What does that even mean? What does it even mean? I'll put a definition on the screen. Eschatology is the study of the last things. That's what it means technically. Here's the Merriam-Webster definition. A branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or humankind. And so when we talk about the word eschatology, we're talking about studying what the Bible has to say about the future of the world, where the world is headed. And the way that those things are going to work themselves out in the future. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about eschatology. Some people get really nerdy about it. Some people get obsessed with it. Some people get consumed by it. Some people get really debatey about it. And it's really annoying and uncomfortable. And some people make charts. And so I want to show you this one. I want to show you this one. This is one. This is an eschatology chart. And, uh, and that's what we're going to unpack today. Um, all of it. No, I'm not. not, We're not going to do that today. But you'll notice there's a guy with a kilt, which is fascinating. Says the present age. There are some little lamps there. We got a couple patches of fire. We have some thrones here and there. A few different thrones in this one. Lots of lines. Lots of lines. They're tough to track. Lots of lines to kind of work through some animals, weeks, a lot of conversation. Uh, This particular chart is a representative uh, representation of a particular viewpoint about eschatology and the study of the last things that 's trying to kind of like work through what the Bible has to say about where the world is headed and kind of tries to map it out in this sort of like logical chronological sequence of events where one thing fits into another and tries to put the pieces together into one Coherent narrative? Coherence of stretch. Uh, coherent narrative. Um, and so that's uh, that's an approach to it, and that's that's not what we're gonna unpack today. Uh, we are gonna talk about the last things. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the end of times, and we're gonna talk about what this passage has to say about it. But my, my fear, my fear for a lot of us as we think about things like this, if you have any kind of familiarity with it, is that. at at times there can, an obsession about putting together these pieces can kind of become so overwhelming and so complex that we lose the heart of what's actually happening. And also that there are so many misunderstandings of the way scripture works that talk about what biblical prophecy, how biblical prophecy works, and how this genre of biblical literature called apocalyptic literature, how that works. And there can be a lot of misunderstandings that sort of just muddy the waters and make us miss the main point. And so what we're going to do today is try to kind of clarify some of those waters a little bit. We're going to unpack what this passage here, Matthew 24 and 25, has to say about the last things and then talk about why that matters for us as a people. And it does matter. It's a vital doctrine of the church. There's tons of debate. There's tons of different opinions about how different things shake out and how they work and how they overlap or relate to one another. That's okay. Okay. But there's some fundamental truths that all Christians for all ages and all cultures and tribes and nations for the past 2,000 years have confessed to be true, have confessed to be true. In fact, there's a statement in two of the most foundational creeds about this. One of them, the Apostles' Creed, which was written, kind of developed in the sort of mid-400s. That's the mid-5th century A.D., says this, the Apostles' Creed. We've confessed it often during Advent. I believe in God the Father Almighty. This is what Christians have confessed. Orthodox Christians, whether Catholic or Protestant or Eastern Orthodox, have confessed around this reality. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, or old school, from thence, he shall come to judge the living and the dead." Christians have confessed this to be true. The, the creed goes on. But that line, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. To be an Orthodox Christian, and that means what we're saying is to not be a heretic, uh, is to believe this to be true. It is crystal clear in Scripture, it is a fundamental theme that is present in all of the Old Testament, in every single book and letter of the New Testament. It's a theme that we revisited and talked about for four weeks during Advent this past year, and it's a theme that this passage brings us face to face with. It's also in the Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed, I'm going to skip down to this section uh, where it speaks specifically of the crucifixion and resurrection. Talking about Jesus, he was made a man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Whose kingdom shall have no end? That was written in the mid four hundreds, mid or the mid three hundreds, mid fourth century A.D., and is what Christians have confessed to be true. And so, what we need to talk about as a as a church family is where does that come from? Because it comes from in part right here. Where does it come from? Why is it important for us? And how are we to understand the way it's supposed to make us live here and now? Because Jesus gives this for us not to help us put together charts. In fact, he's like very intent about the inability to kind of identify a time when these things happen. And he talks to us about where the world is headed so that we can live with this kind of awake mentality, clear about who he is, what his kingdom's like, and what it means to live in a place like Denver, Colorado. What it means to engage in a world that's full of chaos and conflict, and division, and suffering, and opposition, what it means to navigate the brokenness within our own heart, within our own community. It has massive relevance, and so we need to unpack it together. I'm going to be reading the scripture passage a little bit later in the service, but I need to kind of like back up a little bit. And, uh, and kind of pick up where we left off last week and kind of revisit some of those themes to kind of lay the foundation for what's actually happening beginning in Matthew 24, verse 36. And so if you want to open your Bible, uh, actually open it up to Matthew 23. I'm going to point to a couple of things that are happening in Matthew 23, a couple things in the beginning of Matthew 24 that will bring us up. So what we looked at last week is this kind of biblical theology, this sort of like story of a God who is passionate about bringing restoration to his world. He's passionate about rescuing his world from evil. Rescuing his world from evil. So we talked about God, the Father, the Creator King, and Jesus the Son and the Spirit existing in this community, creating a kingdom that is flourishing with righteousness and justice and love and grace and peace, where humanity walks with God and actually reflects God to one another and supposed to be a part of this kingdom that's beautiful and enjoyable and life-giving and free. And as human beings, we said to that creator king and all of his goodness and the righteousness of his authority and his reign we said no thanks we rejected him buying into the lie of an evil spiritual power we buy into the lie that says the right way to life is to reject him and to do it your own way and so we start trying to build life apart from him and in that space what the biblical narrative says is we experience a separation from god we are exiled from his kingdom we are trying to kind of forge our own path. We're trying to make our own way in a world apart from the reign of God. And so the world is full of beauty. It is truly full of beauty because God made it. Every human being in this room is beautiful in God's eyes, truly, deeply, inherently beautiful as an image bearer of God. Every human being in every tribe, in every culture, in every nation around the world has inherent dignity and beauty. Every part of creation has this beauty and this abundance and friendship and relationship and love and food and culture, so much beauty. And it's also all shot through with brokenness. It's also all shot through with a sinfulness or a brokenness that's brought pain and difficulty into every facet of creation. And when we're talking about the biblical theme of judgment, what we're saying is God is on a mission to rescue the world from that evil. So when you think about a war happening in Ukraine, When you think about genocide, when you think about the Holocaust, when you think about mass shootings, when you think about the injustice that is permeating so many aspects of our own society, when you think about global hunger crises, when you think about water crises, when you think about poverty, you think about sex trafficking, you think about the abuse of children, corruption in the church, all this wickedness that makes your stomach wrench when you read the news, and another thing happened, and it makes you want to throw up. All of that is evil, and God is on a mission to rescue the world from that evil. And that happens by bringing judgment upon it. And what's beautiful about the biblical storyline is as we consider the reality that we've all co- contributed to that wickedness, uh, what we tend to think is like, well, bring, bring justice on all the kind of like really extreme stuff, like all the really extreme stuff. And Jesus' mission is again and again and again saying, hey, the problem isn't just the extreme stuff. The problem is at the root of the human experience. The problem lies within each of us. Sex trafficking doesn't happen without lust wars and hatred and bigotry doesn't happen without hate. Injustice and dominating and creating systems of oppression doesn't happen without greed and covetousness. But lust and hate and greed and covetousness is in all of us. And God is on a mission to redeem the world from all of it. He wants his kingdom back. He's going to restore the world and he does it by bringing judgment on sin by removing sin and evil from the world. And the most fundamental way he's doing that, that we learn throughout history and we learn and see most beautifully in the cross is by inviting humanity to this incredible opportunity to return to him. The Bible word is repentance. To return to him, to experience forgiveness and cleansing and healing and transformation through his death and resurrection, that he laid down his life so that as he seeks to remove evil from the world, it's not just kicking out humanity and starting over with a whole new swath of humans. He's offering humanity as a whole. He's offering all of us the opportunity to have that evil that lies at the heart of all of us to be forgiven, cleansed, and through the power of his spirit as we learn to be with Jesus and follow his way of life to be transformed, that we live in this world not with moral perfection here and now, but increasingly becoming the kind of people that are turning from the evil within us and experiencing the transformative power of the gospel. What the biblical theme of justice in God's judgment says is when human beings resist that with hard-hearted, perpetual, obstinate, unrepentant rebellion, eventually God in his commitment to remove evil from the world brings judgment in these waves. And so we talked about last week these sort of horizons of judgment that have happened throughout history. These sort of horizons, that judgment came upon Egypt as Egypt dominated over the people of Israel, crushing them with inescapable burdens, and God brought warning after warning after warning. The Pharaoh of Egypt and the Egyptians hardened their heart against his authority and his kingship, saying, who is Yahweh, that I should listen to him? They reject him, and after warning, after warning, after warning, after warning, finally judgment comes upon Egypt. Same thing happens later in the story, but not now to Egypt. Now it's Israel themselves. They've created corruption and injustice. They're not loving their neighbors. They're not doing justice. They're not representing God as a light to the nations. And God gives them warning after warning through the prophets saying, you've become like Egypt. You're crushing people. You're doing injustice and you're perpetuating the evil that I'm trying to rescue the world from. So he brings judgment on Israel, this time through a a nation, Babylon and Assyria And then the people of Israel are in captivity and they're returning to God. They're repenting and longing for renewal and cleansing and forgiveness. And he says, I'm going to rescue you. The rest of the story is God in these kind of seasons, and these iterations, kind of bringing judgment upon world powers, bringing judgment upon world power after world power through other world powers, essentially saying, hey, if you're going to play the game of exalt yourself and do your own thing on your own terms to lift yourself up against others, eventually somebody else that's doing the same thing is going to overtake you. And that's what basically happens throughout history, is powers rise up, they build themselves up, and judgment comes upon them. And the powerful theme that you see throughout all of Scripture is that all of these human civilizations that are bent on lifting themselves up and exalting themselves against others, God will not ultimately allow any of it to prevail. It crushes people, and he's on a mission to rescue people from that. So by the time you get to the New Testament, the people of Israel are now under the thumb of the Roman Empire... And they expect this king to come to rid them of Roman oppression. And when Jesus, the king, comes, they begin to learn that he's the king and they expect that. He says, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here just to kind of like get rid of the next world superpower so that Israel can be liberated and dominate and create systems of oppression themselves. I'm here to deal with a fundamental root problem that lies at the heart of every single human being. The wickedness that's within each of us. And so he speaks in Matthew chapter 23 about the corruption that has taken place in Israel and that as God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet in the New Testament era culminating in John the Baptist, the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel have rejected him again. So look at what it says. This is Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 32, or it'll we'll do start in verse 33. He's talking to the religious leaders. This is 23. Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon Israel now, saying Israel has rejected the reign of God. They've pushed away from him. They've rejected his authority. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet, begging them to return, just to turn back to him. And Look at what he says, what he would have done if they would have turned. Verse 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I, would I, have, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing saying, I have been begging for you to return to me, just to turn, just to admit that we we turned from you again, we rejected your reign again, we did it, we brought corruption and pain and brokenness to the world, just to return, he's like, I would have gathered you, I would have given you refuge and safety and forgiveness and love, but you were not willing, and the time is up. On this generation, you've become Babylon again, you've become Egypt again, you're crushing people, and you are standing in unrepentance, obstinate rebellion while I'm sitting here saying the kingdom is open come in know me find rest and love you've rejected me and you're keeping other people away now judgment's coming look at chapter 24 verse 1 says this Jesus left that temple he's in the temple when he's prescribing that judgment over the people and the leaders of Israel and the disciples are with him and they're going away out of the temple up to the Mount of Olives and it says this they look at the stones and they say, Look at these buildings and look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? And he says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What Jesus is saying is, another horizon of judgment is coming. Another horizon's coming. This little system you built, where you built up a religious system, even using my very temple, and using, using my laws, and even using my wisdom, you reappropriated those and distorted them so much to so lift yourselves up over others. And you've stood in unrepentant rebellion for generations, and it's time for that whole thing to come down. I'm doing a new thing. I'm building a new thing. And it's not going to happen in that physical temple. It's going to happen as people turn and find the presence of God in me is what he's saying. So judgment is coming. And the disciples are shocked by this. They're astounded by it. It's really confusing to them and so they ask this question. Verse 3, look at what it says. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So again, they think they're asking one question. When will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They expect Jesus, and he's saying this, when he's saying this, that that this one horizon will be the final horizon. When the temple is destroyed, it means the end has come. And what Jesus is doing in this passage that we need to pay attention to is saying they're not the same thing. There is a horizon of judgment coming, the temple is coming down, but it's not the end. The end is going to be later, and there's something that I'm going to be doing, a mission that will be rolling out until the end comes. And so he's going to actually answer this question in two different parts. So look with me at the the passage again. We kind of talked about this last week. I'm just kind of revisiting it as we make our way into this next section. Look at what it says. Starting in verse 4 all the way through verse 14, he's going to unpack the broad framework of what happens before the end, okay? So they've asked this question, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I want to pay attention to that that word, the sign of your coming. Uh, The Greek word behind that is this word parousia. Parousia. We're going to put it on the screen here. This word parousia means the coming or arrival of Christ. It's used in the New Testament in a number of different places, and it always refers to the second coming of Christ, the return of the king. Some of you are like, Lord of the Rings, let's go, you know, uh, the return of the king. That's what it refers to. Some of you are like, you're a total nerd, is what, is what you are. You're a total nerd. I am a total nerd. Confess it. I love this stuff. Um, all right. So the, the arrival of Christ, the parousia, what they're asking is, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of your return and of the end of the age? And so what Jesus does in verses 4 all the way through 14 is kind of says, here's how it works. He gives a framework. It's what we spent some time last week looking at. And here's the framework. Life is going to be chaotic. Wars are going to happen. Divisions will permeate society. There will be natural disasters. There will be famines. There will be pain. There will be corruption and people that hate the people of the kingdom and hate the church. There will be corruption within the church and scandals and false teaching and abuses of power. And it will be devastating. And there will be brokenness within you. And those who can hold fast to me, hang on to me, will in the end be spared from the judgment that's coming upon all of that brokenness. They will be spared. And this good news of the kingdom that will never fail, that will never fall, will make its way to all nations and all peoples, and then the end will come. It's the broad framework. Here's how, here's how it happens. And so when we see people these days like talking about eschatology, it's like, man, it's getting really bad. I bet the end is coming. It's like, sure, except it has always been bad. Like, just read History. It has always been bad. The injustice is bad. Totally agree. It has always been bad. The, the wars and the striving. Have you read the news? And if we layer on like the Roman Empire to like this one world currency, it's clear. The end is coming. It's like, it's always been bad. It's the way it works as humanity has rejected the reign of the king and done it our own way. There are these kind of recurring patterns, a sort of oscillating pattern of like intensifying pain and brokenness, and then a big upheaval of world powers, and then it just gets rebuilt again, and another intensifying kind of experience of brokenness, and then an upheaval of the world powers, and it does that again. This is literally like history 101. Go back, do a quick survey, and it's what it's always been like. And Jesus said, when you see things happening, don't think like, oh, this must be the end. Just hold fast to me, Hold fast to your faith in me. When you see pain outside and people hating you, don't lose heart. The world hated me. It's going to hate you. When you see corruption within the church, don't be like, the church is a sham. He's like, I agree. So much of the church is a sham. That's why I said that judgment is coming upon those who stand in hard-hearted rebellion. It's why he's bringing judgment on Israel. It's because religious leaders in Israel had made the whole thing a sham. Like, there's corruption in the church. Jesus is like, I totally agree. It's why I'm bringing judgment When people stand in unrepentance and build up systems of religion that lift themselves up and crush other people, I stand opposed to that. I told you beforehand so you could be resilient so that when it happens and you feel the pain of being involved in the people of God in this age, don't think that I don't see it. I see it. It's why I'm bringing judgment to either rescue people from that sin or to rescue the world from that obstinate rebellion. He sees it. and You see it in your own heart as well that there's a brokenness, a temptation when we face these things to turn away from God and look at the life of your neighbors and the life of Denver, Colorado, and be like, man, do I really have to be serious about Jesus? Like, can I kind of like keep him as like a little part of my life, but mostly do my own thing according to my own ways and my own agenda, and we get sort of swept up in the Denver life, and I'm here to say, like, Denver is yet another Babylon. Like, we live in Babylon. America's not the new heavens and the new earth, and Denver's not the Garden of Eden. There's beauty everywhere. Beauty. Enjoy it. Love it. Celebrate it. Thank God for it. Give him thanks for it. There's good work happening all over the city, not just from Christians. Partner in it. Seek the welfare and the well-being of Denver. Do it well. Do it with faithfulness. Do it with joy. Do it with commitment. Do it with meaning and intentionality. Yes. But don't forget... We live in Babylon, and the time will come when judgment will come again on all those who stand in hard-hearted rebellion. It will be yet another iteration, another horizon of judgment, and it's how it works. It's how it works. And the temptation that we have is to get swept up in the whole thing and forget that we're living for a, a different kind of a kingdom, an unshakable kingdom. We've got to hold fast. And so what happens in the next verses, starting in verse 15 all the way through verse 35, he's talking specifically about a particular horizon of God's judgment, a horizon. And that horizon happened in 70 AD. It was Rome's destruction of Israel their destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. It's called the Jewish Roman Wars. You can read about it. A historian first century named Josephus wrote all about its horrific nature. It was devastating. Began in 66 AD and Jesus is preparing his followers for that moment. It wasn't just like a little thing. It was a cataclysmic moment, not just in history but in the history of redemption when this whole temple system was finding its final end and its final destruction and humans attempt to build religious systems to work their way back from God who's experienced a very particular and intense expression of judgment. And so, what Jesus says in this section is when you see Rome rolling in, if you're up on the roof, don't go pack your bags, just get out. Like, run hard. It's going to be horrific. And it was. People were burned at the stake, crucified upside down. It was atrocious. People were slaughtered. The temple is desecrated. You can read about the Battle of Masada that happened in this same kind of time period where Rome surrounded this. This this fortress and finally like brought judgment. It was an incredibly devastating experience. It was awful. And Jesus is saying, judgment's coming on this city, just like it did back when Babylon came. It's coming again. And when you see the Roman army coming in, if you're in the field, run. If it's wintertime, it's gonna make it harder. If you're pregnant, it's gonna be harder. If it's on Sabbath, it's gonna be harder. Do what you gotta do. Get out. It's coming. It's coming. In the middle of all of that, he gives these two little images. One is this like weird language about the sun being dark and the moon being turned to blood, and stars falling from heaven. And you're like, that's the end of the world. It's, it's, it's not referring to the end of the world. It's, it's, a, it's a type of literature called the apocalyptic literature. And every time throughout the Old Testament, when Babylon falls, it's like the sun was darkened, the moon was turned to blood, the stars fell from heaven. When Persia falls, The sun was darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars fell from heaven. It's like this undoing of the creation order. It's this language with these deep symbols and this deep imagery of like the world itself is getting like flipped upside down. He's saying that's what's coming. That's what's coming. And he says, we talked about last week, that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He's going to come before the Ancient of Days. He's going to be given authority and power. You're like, but that's him coming again, and it's not. So I'm going to show you just one thing here. I'm going to kind of like pay attention to one detail, and then it'll set the stage for where we go from here. Look at what he says. Uh, again, look at verse 4 or 3. They say, what will be the sign of your coming? We talked about that's the word parousia. There's two basic words for coming in Greek. One is a very technical term, talking about the return of Christ. The other is a very generic term, like, thanks for coming over today. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to be coming over to this thing, and they came over. That's that's the other word that's used. And so, look with me at what happens right here. This is verse thirty. It says this: Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. That is not the word parousia; it's the generic word. He's 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 just coming on the clouds of heaven. Where's he? Where's he coming from, and where is he going to? It says, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's a clear reference to a prophecy in Daniel where it talks about these nations rise up and fall down. Nations rise up and fall down. And nations rise up and fall down. And judgment keeps coming upon the world's attempt to build a kingdom without the king. And it says, then a day will come when this one who's like a son of man who has this incredible glory and power, and he will come in the heavenly realm among the clouds, and he will appear before the ancient of days, not come from heaven to earth, come among the clouds, with the clouds, before the ancient of days, and he will receive authority to build a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. So as people live in these perpetual rising and falling kingdoms, as humans try to do their own thing without God, they can be liberated from that and brought into a kingdom that will never be shaken. A kingdom that's not built with human hands. A kingdom that will bring ultimate freedom and deliverance from evil and wickedness, not just against those out there that can bring transformation to all those who enter into it by faith. It's the kingdom that's being built. And so what Jesus is saying is you're gonna see that. And they did. He used the same exact phrase, the coming of the Son of Man with power in the clouds to talk about what happened on his cross and through his vindicating resurrection. It was him receiving power. He referred to it in the Great Commission when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's saying, I'm the son of man. I've been saying it all along. I appeared before the ancient of days. He's given me all authority in the heavenly realm to rescue you from spiritual powers and in the earthly realm to rescue you from your own sin and the corruption. I have all authority. So game on, go rescue people from brokenness. All nations, make disciples, help liberate people from the dominions of darkness and see them transferred into my unshakable kingdom of love, righteousness, and judge, justice. Not through their works, but through faith in Christ. So he says, I'm sending out like angels, these messengers and these spiritual beings and witnesses of Christ to the, to the nations to gather in my people. That's what's happening right now. It's the age we're in. So look at what happens again. We're gonna show one other part in this passage. I think it's another kind of thing that you'll see in the passage. Look, as, as they think about all the destruction that's coming on Israel, they're going to think, this must be the end. Maybe it's the end, and people will be like, hey, Jesus is back. He's over there. Jesus is back. He's over there. I heard he's coming back over here. And Jesus says, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Look at verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming. This one's parousia. The return of Christ will be like lightning. When all this crazy stuff happens on Jerusalem, and people are like, Christ is back, finally. Finally he's been gone for 20 years and we just saw him again. He's been gone for 30 years. We just saw him again. He's been gone for 38 years. He's back. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. When I come back, everybody will know. Just like when lightning strikes, it's visible, it's immediate, it's clear, it's undeniable. That's what the return of Christ will be like. Visible, clear, unmistakable, undeniable. The judgment that's coming on Jerusalem is not that. All of that will happen. Look at verse 35. Thirty-four. Truly, I say to you, all of all of these things, this generation will not pass away until all of these things, the judgment on Jerusalem, takes place. Verse thirty-six. That all was intro. You're like, are you kidding me right now? No, uh, no. That sets the stage for this. Let's look at what he says. But concerning that day, that day, that day is a really clear phrase that's used throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, referring to this final day of judgment according to that day or concerning that day, no one knows. So when is the coming of Christ the Christ going to be? When's he going to return? Jesus says, no one knows. You're like, yeah, but that guy on YouTube said, it's like, no one knows. Yeah, but that guy downtown with the sign said, no one knows. Like how, how big is the no one knows? Well, let's look. Not even the angels in the heavenly realm, not even the angels, nor the Son. You're like, Jesus saying, I don't know. But the guy on YouTube said, you know, it's like, what? He's saying, no one knows. Some people are like, it's about to happen. Just no one knows. No one knows. He, Jesus is saying, I don't know. And that's going to, if you have like this, it's going to trip some of you up. You're like, wait, isn't Jesus one with the Father? And doesn't he know? And it's like, yes and know. He's one with the Father. He is God. The Father's God. The Spirit's God. But Jesus is not the Father. And this is one of those moments that there are things that the Father knows that Jesus does not know. He said it really clearly in a few different places that he doesn't know. So here's, here's what we need to do is we need to talk about what does that mean and what does Jesus say? Because he says no one knows what's gonna ha- when, it's, what's, when it's going to happen, but it's important that you're ready. So look what he says, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the parousia of the Son of Man. It's going to be unexpected, it's going to be immediate, and it will catch people unprepared. Here's what I want to do for a moment. Want to, we need to talk about and explain what the day of the Lord is in a sort of biblical theology. And I thought, how do I say this in the most succinct way possible? And the most succinct way I know how to say something is to let somebody else say it. Um, And so I'm gonna have you watch uh, a short video that'll explain the day of the Lord, that'll make it a little clearer from the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, it's a phenomenal resource that can really help you make sense of the Bible. But we'll play this short video, and then we'll talk about kind of what does that mean and what what does Jesus say that should mean for our life here and now. So we'll play this quick clip, and then we'll dive
0: back in.
2: The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world.
0: Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment.
2: And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down?
0: So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book.
2: When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf.
0: But the humans are tempted by this mysterious unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place.
2: Which is what they did. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results.
0: Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival. And they're all using death as this weapon to gain power.
2: It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon.
0: Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be, a whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God.
2: So, God confuses their language and scatters them.
0: Now, from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God.
2: And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt.
0: Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And This is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward and he's swallowed up by death.
2: Now, after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil.
0: And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day.
2: The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system.
0: And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb that's called Passover.
2: Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face
0: new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats.
2: Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos.
0: He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence.
2: So God's people have become like Babylon. The oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape.
0: And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This
2: is the story Jesus was born into.
0: Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome.
2: So, is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out?
0: Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel. All humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he did. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human.
2: Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well. and We keep building new versions of Babylon.
0: Right. And so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world.
2: Yeah, this is it. Armageddon. Final judgment. How is Jesus going to finish off evil?
0: Well, it's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloodied before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies and the sword is in his mouth it's a symbol of jesus's authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all
2: and so in the meantime the day of the lord is an invitation
0: to resist the culture of babylon and it's a promise that god will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store
1: Crystal clear now, right? We good? All right, we're good. You're like, that was way better than everything you, you say. And I agree. You should check it out. The Bible Project's awesome. I love the way that, that ended. talks about this, this kind of um, foretelling of this coming day of judgment is both an invitation. It's an invitation. And it's this promise of ultimate rescue. It's an invitation to turn from the things that are in us that bring the brokenness and perpetuate the brokenness in this world to experience forgiveness, to experience life, to experience cleansing and healing and to trust in Christ and to hold fast to him, but also to resist, he said, resist the culture of Babylon. And I think it's a powerful thing for us. And that's what Jesus is saying right here in this passage. Look at what he says when he's talking about this. And I want to just kind of close it up with two major kind of like points that kind of summarize it. The first one's this. Jesus will come again to remove evil from his world and fully restore his kingdom of love and justice. It's what he's going to do. This coming judgment is not from this like angry God who just like wants to make people pay. It's from a God who is intent, determined to rescue the world from evil. So much so that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, laid down his life, offering forgiveness in reconciliation and transformation for all who would turn to him. It is his mission to see people rescued from the sin within all of us. But it's also a statement that for those who stand in unrepentant, obstinate rebellion, he will eventually rescue the world from evil by removing people from it and bringing people to a place of unmitigated misery, the misery and the destruction that is life without God, that is life apart from his reign. And that's what he ends up saying in this passage. Look at what he says here, starting in verse Uh, We'll pick it up right in verse 38. For as in the days of Noah, or as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. That when he comes to bring judgment, it will be immediate, it will be sudden, it will be unexpected, and people will be surprised. That's the point to bringing up the Noah story. It's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like lightning that flashes in the sky, clear, visible, but immediate, unexpected, and people will be caught unaware. Look at what it says. Verse 39. Or uh, starting in verse... Yeah, 39, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. At that point, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And that's not talking about like, taken snatched up in the sky. The phrase for taken there is actually referring to those that are swept away in judgment. So you're not, your goal is not to be taken. This is like Liam Neeson kind of taken. You know what I mean? Like it's not a good kind of taken. Um, God's like the ultimate true and better Liam Neeson, who's like, I have a very particular set of skills. Um, <laughs> he's going to bring judgment. People will be taken away. And look at what it says. It's a powerful thing. Therefore, stay awake, Stay awake because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, the parousia. But know this, that if a master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house get broken into. He's saying if you knew your house was going to get broken into in the middle of the night, you'd stay awake, you'd stay alert, you'd pay attention, you wouldn't shut the lights off, you'd be ready. And he's saying have that kind of vigilance when you think about the nature of my kingdom. Don't get lost in Babylon. Don't forget about the kingdom. Don't get swept up in the whole like way of life in Denver and building your life through your own kind of like passions and trying to just suck the world of all of its pleasure on your own terms with a little bit of Jesus here and there. Put Jesus at the center. Hold fast to him. Don't get swept away in Babylon. He says this. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the theme of this whole section. I'm coming again to bring ultimate judgment, to, to rescue the world from evil. Don't be caught up in the evil when I come. Hold fast to me, pay attention to me, pay attention to reality, pay attention to what I've done, who I am, is that calling you to moral perfection? No way. Jesus laid down his life because of all of our brokenness. He suffered on the cross to bring forgiveness and reconciliation, but you have to hold fast to him, endure to the end, do not get caught up in the life of Babylon. And forget about the nature of the kingdom. Stay awake. And then he's going to give three parables that unpack it. Three parables. One is of the master of a house who's put in charge of the master's goods. And the servant of the house who's put in charge of the master's goods. The other is of these ten women, unmarried women, who are kind of providing this procession for this groom that's coming back to a wedding feast. And the third is this parable of the talents. Neil's going to unpack the third next week, which essentially kind of unpacks all of these things. So I'm going to leave more space for it to be unpacked next week, but I want you to see two things here. And here's the kind of like bottom line theme is that you can be ready for that day. You can be ready for that day by living with resilient faith, wisdom, and faithfulness. You can be ready for that day. And that's what he's saying. You must be ready. How do we we be ready, Jesus? If you're coming again to bring justice, how do we make sure that we're like there ready for you to come, ready for your kingdom to come? He gives three parables. First one, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at their proper time? He's saying there's a creator, there's a master, there's a Lord of a household. It's his household and he creates people To kind of like play a part, to love and to serve and to represent him in the way they love and serve others in the world. It's the part you're called to play. If you're faithful in that, when the master comes back, the master's like, great job. Well done. Look at what it says. It says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, saying, stay faithful. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know. So he's going to come at an unexpected moment. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's in the Bible. Jesus said it. And you've got to, like, deal with it. What's he, what's he saying? He's saying, if you decide, I'm going to live in a world, I'm going to reject God, I'm going to reject my, my nature as a creature. I'm going to reject the accountability I have to my creator. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to kind of take advantage of this world as if it were mine. I'm going to kind of use it all for my own advantage. I'm going to use it all in ways that bring pain to others. If you stand like that in unrepentant, obstinate rebellion, Jesus says that that kind of approach to life, which he you says you're beating other people, the same sort of like evil that you've committed to other people will come back upon you and you will experience separation from God in a place of unmitigated misery. So that's what's happening. This call to stay awake is to live with faithfulness. Is that a call to moral perfection? No. It's to live according to your design in the world, pursue Jesus, hold fast to him. Because when the kingdom comes, you want it to come on a person that's saying, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm a sinner. I've got weaknesses and issues, but I'm fighting to hold on to Jesus and follow his way of life. In other words, I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple. What makes you a disciple? I, I'm, I trust that Jesus died for me to pay the penalty for my sins, and I'm trying to follow his way of life. That's what I'm doing. And if you're doing that, when he comes again, he's like, it's awesome. It's party time. It's like a celebration. You're going to be a part of the feast. It's joy. He's going to say things like, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. The kingdom's here. Welcome to a world that is free of evil and injustice. Like, live with faithfulness. But the last, the next kind of like parable he gives is, again, a a powerful one. He says this, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or these unmarried women, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom, or the groom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed—in other words, he didn't come back as soon as people expected—they all became drowsy and slept, all of them, as longer than anybody expected. But at midnight there was a cry: "Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him!" Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, "Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out." But the wise answered, saying, "Since there will be not en- since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather." to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore for you neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Here's the bottom line that's happening in this passage. The images of these Ten unmarried women, like bridesmaids, that are there. They're friends of the bride and the groom. And their role in this feast is to wait. The groom goes away, and then the groom comes back, and they're supposed to kind of go be a part of this processional to bring the groom and to escort the groom into the wedding feast. Party time, celebration, food, wine, dancing, joy, incredible. That's the way the kingdom is framed in this passage. And you're supposed to be ready. And so they all get their torches, like these torches. They dip them in oil, they light them up, and they're waiting for the groom and they got their torches lit. My torches lit, ready to go. And he just didn't come back as early as any of them expected. It took longer than they all expected. And some of them had prepared to endure. Five of them had brought oil so they could dip their torches back in oil and light it up and be ready to go. Five of them did not. Five of them, their torches were going out and they had not prepared to, to endure. And it's really a call to resilient faith I acknowledge that following Jesus has difficulty. There's pain in the world, there's cost to you in the city. More and more you feel that, kind of like being a Christian isn't like a social, it doesn't give you like social capital, it's a social net negative. There's pain and corruption in the church and brokenness and scandals. We walk through our own challenges as a church regularly because of sin in all of our hearts. That's hard, that's hard. When you feel those things and you feel the brokenness within you, The temptation is to kind of like lose heart and let your lamp go out and fade away and forget that Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. He's coming again. And what the call here is for resilient faith. Jesus has laid it out with clarity. I'm coming again. Keep your lamps ready, keep oil with you, hang on with resilient faith. I'm building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm going to rescue the world from evil. I'm gonna totally transform your own life and bring you not just forgiveness, but life everlasting, resurrect the body, build a kingdom of righteousness and justice and love. And his call for us as followers is to stay faithful to him, to hold fast to the gospel, to hold fast to his way, to represent him in the way we love and do justice in this world, to be a part of this new creation work that he's doing, so that when he comes again, we stand with confidence. Not, "Look look at all I did, aren't I good enough? But like, no, I've been waiting, because I trust you, who you are and what you've said. I've been struggling and doubting and wrestling and wandering, but I've been returning and holding fast and blessed is the one who holds fast to the end. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom. What Jesus says at the end is those who don't endure and those who don't continue on, what he'll say is as they come and say, man, the kingdom's here. I shouldn't have done all that. Knocking on the door. He's like, I, I don't, I don't know you. It's a very sobering thing that he says in a number of different places. I have no relational knowledge of you. You, you did your own thing your whole life. You pressed against me again and again. You pushed away from my kingdom. I don't know you. I offered again and again and again, but you stayed hell-bent on your own way. You ran the Denver way. You ran the America way. You ran the injustice way. You ran the immoral way. You ran the broken way. You ran the self-righteous religious way. You lifted yourself up against others. I, I pleaded again and again and again, and you pushed against me. It's a sobering, sobering call. The flip side of that call is this beautiful invitation. This beautiful invitation. Not to like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and pretend you're great, but to come to Jesus in repentance and say, Jesus, I want to stay awake. I want to stay alert. I want to, I want to bring my oil with me. I want to endure with faithfulness. I want to follow your way of life. To prove that you're worthy? No. No. But to give evidence to the faith that Christ laid down his life for you. He died on the cross for you. He rose again. He's starting and building a whole new kingdom. Do you believe it? It's a wild world view. Very different than Denver, Colorado. Very different than your neighbors. Very different than your coworkers. But Jesus was crystal clear. So if you want to follow Jesus, we have to hold fast to that. And kind of like, get to this point, like am I all in with Jesus or am I gonna kind of be like, kind of in with Jesus as that good moral teacher that Lewis says like, he hasn't left that open to you. He He hasn't left that open to you. He's either king and Lord or he's a lunatic. Like a poached egg, Lewis says, we either bow to him and say, I want to follow you and be a part of your kingdom, or we don't. The invitation here is to joy, to life, to forgiveness, to love, to justice, to transformation into a world that is free of evil for those who hold fast to Jesus until the end. Let's pray that you'd help us to do that together. Jesus, we come right now. We need your mercy and your grace to help us. There's brokenness in me and sin in me that is dark and scary. I pray you'd help me to be a man who lives with repentance, continual repentance, not out of fear, but for joy, for joy, because of your love, because of your grace, because of the beauty of your kingdom. I want to be in it, and I want to walk and follow you with these brothers and sisters. And so, Holy Spirit, would you pour yourself out even right now on this community? that we would hear your words and that we wouldn't push against them and, as if you were crazy. You are not crazy. You are the king. Would you help us to live in light of these things with wisdom, with faithfulness and with resilient faith that we'd enjoy the goodness of your kingdom, the grace and the love that you have for us and then help us to be a people that represent you well in this world. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.